Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With a special AEW NJPW Forbidden Door Instant Analysis episode. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are here just minutes after Forbidden Door went off the air to break down every damn thing that happened on this first co-branded pay-per-view between AEW and New Japan Professional Wrestling. Vintage Chris Vanini is here with me. He will join the show in a moment, but I think you all know whenever we do these instant analysis podcasts, we do not like to waste any time. So with that, let me remind you off the top, as I always do, that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating. Also on Apple, leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show, why you listen, why you subscribe. Every time there is a new five-star review, we read it on the podcast. And we've been doing that a lot recently, which means you guys are leaving those reviews. And we greatly appreciate it. Also, please do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting overcast not only do we tweet every single time a new show is published but we tweet during every episode of aew and wwe television uh that way you guys can know our thoughts as those programs are going on we also do live shows on twitter spaces we post polls that you guys are able to contribute uh you know your your thoughts which we have for pre and post show grades for forbidden door you will hear about those in a moment long story short every reason in the world to follow us on twitter at getting Overcast. Now, only for these instant analysis episodes. Very special. It is always late at night. The Silver King, Vintage Christmini. We crack cold ones just to celebrate a little bit and have a good time loosen up talking about these shows. Well, unfortunately, this week, we're doing things a little bit differently. Uh, Vintage, who I will welcome in momentarily, is at his parents' house, and they did not stock the refrigerator appropriately. Your boy, uh, when drinking all day, I was at breweries all day long. I had a lot of beer, so I decided not to continue doing that tonight. I need to keep a clear head. Instead, I'm going to pop open a hop water, blood orange. It is a sparkling water made with hops. So something brand new, non-alcoholic, zero calories. Uh, I'm going to give this a shot. Chris, How since you don't have anything to crack open, how are you doing over there? I'm doing well. In a correction, I'm not at my parents' house. I am in Canada at my oh. family's cottage in Ontario. Look at Ontario. this. Look, look at this hoity-toity so, guy. This is the first international edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Apropos, given it is a co-branded exactly. international uh, you know, national show. Uh, so that's why you're tweeting pictures of Canadian flags that are overrated. Yes, that's why we were having a mini debate yeah. on Twitter about the Canadian flag, which is a top five world flag, in my opinion. But I should have some Molson on me right now. I don't. I didn't realize till about halfway through the show that we didn't have anything in the fridge, unfortunately. So I just have a normal water here. So both of us going without alcohol tonight. But yeah. there's a lot of wrestling to talk about as well. So at yeah, least I at least it. I have a carbonated beverage made with hops. That is, by the way. Very tasty hop water, folks. Hit up your boy. Let's sponsor the podcast here. This stuff is delicious. I, I want to talk about this every single episode. I absolutely love it. A couple problems with your comments. Number one, it is not a top five flag. We will continue that conversation on Tuesday show. We'll get into the vexiology or however you say that word, uh, convo about flags. 
But number two, there has to be better beer in Canada than Molson. There just has to be because yeah. it ain't that good. Well, it has to be some Canadian beer. I, I mean, I I don't know about. I'm just saying they have to. There has to be beer, breweries there that make better beer than Molson's. I mean, whether well, I mean, when I was growing up in in, in Michigan, Labatt Blue Light was my drink of choice uh, at the time. So whether it's Labatt, whether it's Molson, it's got to be one of those big Canadian beers that I got to get sometime while I'm up here. And by the way, despite me saying that, Molson, feel free to sponsor us as well. We will take that anytime. But look, we're not here to talk about uh, beer flags or anything like that. We're here to talk professional wrestling and sports entertainment. And let us, Chris, get right into it with our AEW, NJPW, Forbidden Door, Instant Analysis. Now, the way we always begin these, it's every single episode, just so you all know. We start by giving you our thoughts leading into the program, what our pre-show grades, our expectations were for the pay-per-view. And at the very end, we will recap it with our post-show grades. So Chris, just to give everyone uh, uh, an idea of where we stood going into this, you and I both gave it Bs on our ultimate preview show, which by the way, is in our archives. You can feel free to listen to that. As far as our listeners go, here was the breakdown from the poll earlier. 19% 19% A, 50% B, 26% C, 6% D to F. That to me breaks down as a low B, mm-hmm. B minus in that range. It's obviously very tough when there's not uh, those specific types of grades in the poll, but a low B. So they were very similar to us, maybe slightly more pessimistic going into the show. Yeah, and look, it, it wasn't a great build going in, but we did both agree that the go home was very solid and very got strong. us more excited yeah. for the show than we were a week prior. So, I mean, it it was, everybody could agree coming in, and clearly the listeners did as well, that the build to the show was not great. And so you weren't quite sure maybe what to expect or how high it could go going in. Agreed. There just really was not a strong build to the show, top to bottom. A lot of that is because things did change. There were injuries, absences, a ton of, it seems, extenuating circumstances leading into the show, but also just things were sloppy. However, the go-home dynamite was very entertaining, and it really did juice you up for the show, especially because, hey, look, it introduced two elements that ended up being the biggest elements on the show. One, a mystery opponent that we will get into talking about momentarily, and Kazuchika Okada, maybe arguably the greatest wrestler in the world right now, at least top five, inarguable that he's top five, unlike the Canadian flag. So, you know, those two elements being added to the show, not necessarily at the last minute, but on the go-home show, did amp up expectations and excitement. And I think that's why both you and I were at B's and why the listeners were maybe slightly below at low B, uh, B minus. But before we get into all the individual matches, we're going to break down the results of every match with grades, with our opinions and thoughts. I just wanted to talk about a couple individual quick items that led into the show. Continuing this string of injuries and absences that have plagued wrestling, by the way, across the world, AEW, WWE, New Japan, Tomohiro Ishii and Hiromu Takahashi were both ruled out of the show a couple days before it began. Ishii was in that All-Atlantic Championship match. Uh, It was one of the bookings I was looking forward to most on the entire show. I love Ishii, everyone who remembers me from my old podcast. He was one of my favorite New Japan guys. Takahashi kind of barely mattered given his match was booked this past Wednesday and he didn't necessarily need to be in, in it. A couple other things. The commentary team started out as Excalibur, Kevin Kelly, who's the English play-by-play man for New Japan. You probably remember him from WWE and Taz. And they sounded great together and were super entertaining. But then as the show went on, like 
Tony Schiavone showed up. Then Jim Ross came on. And I'm not exactly sure why they decided to do that, but I much preferred the original team that we got. And if those three had done the whole show, it would have been awesome. And then one last thing, the setup. AEW used that dial down set that it last used, I think, for Dynamite in Los Angeles. And the set was fine. The graphics kind of at times looked like portals. I thought that was pretty great. The problem I had is this felt like an obvious situation to use a special set, given it's a dual branded show. And the thing is called Forbidden Door. I kind of wanted a huge door somewhere. (laughs) And I just kind of wish they had leaned into that and, you know, leaned into the fact that it was dual branded and used a hybrid ring. You know, the steps in front like they do in Japan or maybe different turnbuckles. From a referee standpoint, they were all AEW referees. Maybe you could have gotten Red Shoes to come over or a couple New Japan officials. It just felt like it was an AEW show with New Japan talent when what I really wanted was a mixed AEW New Japan show. Sure. And, and by, by the way, spoiler alert, I really like the show. And, and we're, we're going to get into it. Me too. We, we love the show. Before we, Very before much. We, get into the, we really like the show. Great show. Um, your commentary point. Not only did Jim Ross and Tony Giovanni show up, uh, Caprice Coleman made another appearance again. Doing that guy. Another... Who I still, and I, I think of myself as someone who really knows wrestling, <laughs> still don't know who he is. But Showed up for the tag team match. Yeah. Kevin Kelly was awesome. Yeah, I, I, I would love for I, I mean, Excalibur does a great job, but I would love for Kevin Kelly to be part of the permanent team because he is he's really good at both listing off, you know, why things are important, but also kind of telling a story while doing that, as opposed to just saying this guy wrestled in this company and won X championships, blah, blah, blah. He, he was great. The three man booth worked really well. No matter who is involved, four man boots are too much. And that was true here again uh, today. As for the setup, look, I mean, I, I want AEW to do special stages. I want WWE to do special stages outside of WrestleMania uh, that, that we just we generally don't get. I miss that period of wrestling. I think especially mm-hmm. for AEW when you're only doing four or five shows uh, a year, go a little all out and make, make the stages a little bit better. But this is still a nice, you know, fine stage uh, for, for, for what it was. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I, I've, I've been to... One New Japan show uh, when they were in Dallas a couple years ago. That's my only experience kind of really seeing that whole setup. And obviously things are a little bit different there. And I think you're right. You probably could have incorporated a little bit more in, in their different way. Um, but, you know, it, it, it is an AEW show kind of in the U.S. So, so I get it too. Absolutely. Okay. So the way we do these instant analysis, it is the opposite of our ultimate preview. The ultimate preview, we work with the low card. We go all the way up to the main event, but we do not keep you waiting here on the instant analysis. We start with the big news. We start with the main event and we work our way down the card based on what we feel the most important matches and moments are. So that's exactly what we're going to do here. And that means we are starting with the interim AEW World Championship match, John Moxley against Hiroshi. Tanahashi. Obviously, this was the final match on the show. William Regal entered with Mox. I believe it was the first time that happened. Tanahashi worked on Mox's knee. He caught him with a running cutter. There was a fight in the crowd, like for real, that distracted fans. And it really toned down the energy of the match. And it started really hot, but it completely toned it down. And shout out to Michael Waterloo, who I know was in attendance and gave us that information. So thank you. But someone started a fight, had to get pulled out. Anyway, that distracted for a while uh, as Mox put Tanahashi in a Texas cloverleaf. Tana hit a really nice somersault sent on for a near fall. Mox put him through that ringside table with a urinagi. And he, in that moment especially, appeared to be working heel. 
as he was prepared to take a countout victory. He was cool with Tanahashi just working his way back into the ring. Moxie had a sling blade inside, only to roll outside and then blade himself for no reason. There was so much blood that I legitimately think he cut himself too deep. And the referee was actually concerned. Like, I don't think it was kayfabe. I think he was worried that the cut would not stop bleeding. Tanahashi hit a great high fly flow off the top rope outside. Mox came back with a paradigm shift inside for a 2.9. That really did seem to be three. Tana hit high fly flow standing and another flat, but a delayed cover ended up being a false finish. That's usually how he wins matches. Mox immediately rolled him over into the bulldog choke, but he refused to submit. Tana later kicked out of a huge lariat at one. That got a really nice pop. Mox bludgeoned him with elbows and locked in a rear naked choke. The crowd chanted for ace, but Mox moved to the bulldog choke again. Tanahashi escaped. Mox finally came back with Death Rider for the one, two, three to win the interim title in 18 minutes. This was a classic professional wrestling match. Like the go home sequence, the finish, fantastic. It protected Tanahashi and it made him look like he took all of Moxley's best shots in order to lose. And that's what you want when you're dealing with someone of his caliber in New Japan. It also sold Mox as a heel, but we'll get to that in a moment. Literally the only thing I would have done differently, and yes, I would have not done it at all, is the blading. It was not only distracting, but it was completely unnecessary to the match story or to my entertainment and enjoyment level of the match. It added absolutely nothing whatsoever. There was no justification for it. Nothing happened in the ring that led to him possibly you know, breaking skin, such as if there's an exposed turnbuckle or if someone bites you or something like that. He literally ate a sling blade, rolled outside and bladed for no reason. So there was no justification for it and there was no purpose to it. And I will admit it did slightly downgrade the match for me because it was distracting and that plays into match story and match quality. So I went four stars and A minus for this. I was It only downgraded at a quarter star, but either way, very good match, worthy main event, the right winner but the blading was completely unnecessary. Yeah, great match uh, just outside of that blade. Moxley working heel, like you said, it worked. It fit the situation. Not only this match, but really all the matches on the card, the crowd was really into the New Japan guys. It, it, this wasn't like a invading company type of thing, WD, WWWCW. The fans were more excited to see the new guys and the New Japan guys just simply that they, they were new. And that, that was especially true here with Tanahashi in this match and, and, and Okada in the, in the match that we'll get to later. Um, so the match was booked great for that reason, um, mm-hmm. especially because now Moxley is the interim champ. CM Punk's going to come back at some point. They'll have a deal. CM Punk's probably going to be face in that, I think. So so it all worked out really well. That. This match did not have a ton of false finishes. Uh, and, I, and I honestly think that worked. Like, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't something that it felt like it needed. It felt like a major heavyweight clash. So so that was really good. The blading, look, it's called the sling blade. It's right there in the name, I guess. <laughs> Apparently it's a it's a it's a really sharp move. That was it was ridiculous. Like like it's one thing if you earned it, do something, do right. a turnbuckle, do a head into the stairs, do rough's not looking, you hit a guy with something. Like you gotta do something. I I, I just can't understand the the planning of that match and you're saying, all right, this is when I'm going to blade. Like, what? The, how do you? How do and you, by the way, build to that. And by the way, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. They have blood and guts coming up Wednesday, right? So they have a show where the main event is going to be blood everywhere. And if you wanted blood 
to close this show to promote Blood and Guts. We'll talk about what happened after the match in a moment. You blade there. Yeah, yeah. You have an opportunity for one or two or three people to blade. That's where you do it. You don't do it in the match where it made zero sense and it had no impact on the story. And yes. it took away from it. Cor- correct. Uh, honestly, that was really, that's the only thing I'd really take away from the match because that was distracting. Like, like, it was a really solid match. There weren't any real was, problems. Yeah. Um, everything fit. It's just, just the one blading kind of really took, took, took you out of it for a while because of uh, how bad it was. So let's talk about what happened after the bell. A good three minutes after the bell. And credit to AEW for waiting three minutes because they usually wait 30 seconds at most. So three minutes after the bell, uh, Moxley has been able to celebrate with the title a little bit. He shakes Tanahashi's hand. Out of nowhere, Chris Jericho and Daniel Garcia attack both of them. Eddie Kingston, Wheeler Yuta, Santana, and Ortiz run down. Fans start booing. I don't think they were booing the heels. I think they were booing the decision to do a post-match attack. Now, maybe I'm projecting there, but that's what I heard. It was like a rumbling low boo. It was not like, boo, F you heels. You know, it was was like, oh, this sucks, right? But again, maybe I'm projecting. The rest of Jericho Appreciation Society runs down. Then, spoiler alert for a match that we're going to be talking about in a moment, Cesaro runs down to clean house and do the swing. This was obviously just to promote Blood and Guts on Wednesday. But Chris, coming off of a really strong main event, this was idiotic. Let me make this clear. You just crowned an interim champion. Now, granted, okay, AEW has done a lot this last month to tell us that the interim champion doesn't matter. But still, you just took a guy in John Moxley, who all week was the center of a media blitz, overcoming addiction, you know, moving into possibly being the first two-time AEW world champion, and you overshadow his moment with wasn't just a brawl, but it was a horrendous brawl, and it was completely unnecessary. They did a brawl at the end of Dynamite. They did a brawl at the end of Rampage. Let me tell you something, AEW, Tony Khan. Everyone who watched Forbidden Door is going to watch Blood and Guts on Wednesday. You did not need to promote the show. Mox did get a few minutes to celebrate, like I said, but I thought it was atrocious decision-making and not the way this show should have ended. The show should have ended with Moxley on top. And one last thing, and then I'll let you get in, Chris. The whole match, they booked this guy as a heel. He works heel the entire match. As you said, the expectation is Mox is the heel, CM Punk is the face when they eventually fight for the title. And then after spending 20 minutes making this guy into a heel, they and now I know they have the match Wednesday, so they, can, they can't avoid it, but they could have avoided the post-match attack. They immediately turn him into a face side again because he's the face side of this feud. So it was just unnecessary. It was inappropriate to have in that moment. Just really poor decision-making. Two things. One, it did ruin the moment at the end because you had Mox and Tanahashi coming together. Uh, Moxie says something to him. It was like the perfect... Look, this show went off way better than all of us expected. It was Absolutely. a great show. And they were just about to wrap it up in a great way that everybody's happy. You know, the whole... The, this the show was not about blood feuds and all that stuff. It was just about guys putting on great wrestling matches. And it was about pro wrestling. And they did it. And then they had to kind of end it with some sports entertainment type booking. <laughs> I know the JAS is sports entertainment, but still, it was a mess. The second part is that AEW is just really bad at these 
post-match brawls. The Dynamite one was bad. The crowd was not into it. I didn't see the Rampage one, so I don't know. But this was just a it was just an ugly one. There's too many things going on. They did get Cesaro Claudio to come in to do the spin, so they got one big spot out of it, actually. But I didn't know what this was for. Honestly, I'd kind of forgotten that Moxley was in blood and guts because of Claudio. I didn't exactly know who was involved. But this was the problem with booking a half pay-per-view coming right off of another pay-per-view. It it was even last week in Dynamite. They were were building. It was the go-home to two different shows, essentially. And so you kind of had to, to do that. I don't think ending this show this way sold blood and guts anymore. No, definitely than not. they needed to, which is no. it's a free show anyway. Like you said, everybody who's watching this is going to watch on Wednesday. It was just completely unnecessary. Yeah, it was, it's just one of those things where you look at AEW and some of that youth, right, of Tony Khan in terms of being a booker shines through. Like it's it's. Many of the things that they do are indulgent for no reason. John Moxley wants to blade. He doesn't need to blade. Tony wants to do a post-match attack. He doesn't need one. They didn't need to bring Cesaro back out. He had his moment. He had a great moment. Guess what? People want to see him again. They're going to tune into Blood and Guts. They just saw him twice on one show. Now, that's not going to make them not tune into Blood and Guts, but it just was unnecessary. He already had his massive, huge pops and moments. The, the response he got at the end in the main event, yeah, they cheered for the swing a little bit. But when he ran out, everyone was just like, oh, there's Cesaro again. You had the signature moment with the entrance. You don't need to do it a second time. It's not going to be as good the second time as the first time. Look at CM Punk. They try to replicate his entrance a million different times. Well, that first one was special. The rest of them aren't. They're still good, but they're not special. So why do it again? So, you know, we're spending too much time on it, but it was just totally those two things, the blading and the post-match attack were unnecessary. The show was really ramping up well. And I think the key moment at the end of Forbidden Door, Mox, Tanahashi, standing there, shaking hands, co-branded show, new interim champion. That's a great shot. It's selling it to your Japanese audience, selling it to the American audience. Everyone's really happy. It felt like everything that happened after it, it almost overshadowed the fact that it was a dual-branded pay-per-view. It's like, all right, we're moving on to Blood and Guts with all of our guys. So that's it. Let's, Let's keep going here, okay? Uh, IWGP World Heavyweight Championship. This was the co-main event. The champion, Jay White, defending against Kazuchika Okada, Adam Cole, and Hangman Adam Page. So New Japan had their own announcer for the pre-match ceremony. But what surprised me, I mentioned this earlier, is we did not have Red Shoes, their main referee, presiding over the match. Not just that, we didn't have any New Japan referee presiding over the match. So it's one thing to do an AEW-branded show, with an AEW ring and basically no New Japan logos anywhere and blah, blah, blah. But to have two of their champ, three, sorry, of their championships on the line, two in matches that uh, did not have another title on the line and just have AEW referees, to me, it felt like an oversight. And it was a little bit strange given the, you know, predominance of the title, how, how important it is to that audience to not have one of their referees on it, I thought was strange. Regardless, okay. Uh, Okada got a tremendous response, huge. And the fans chanted, holy shit, with a standing ovation before they touched. All the wrestlers like amped up the crowd to get really excited, which was cool. Hangman took a vertical suplex on the ramp, then threw White into the steps. Cole super kicked Hangman midair during a moonsault, flashing back to the ricochet thing in NXT. 
Okada cleaned house and did a crossbody into the crowd onto White and Cole. White and Cole did too sweet, only for Cole to immediately turn on him for a near fall. White hit some snap sleeper suplexes, then ate boom from Cole, and they all got knocked out. Hangman got a Liger bomb on White for a 2.8. Cole and Gato prevented Buckshot Lariat, then White ducked it, but Hangman hit Deadeye. Then he hit the Buckshot clean for a broken fall. Hangman and Okada countered signatures until Hangman hit the Lariat and Deadeye on Okada. Okada then countered Panama Sunrise from Cole into an air raid crash with a flying elbow. Rainmaker and a Buckshot were both avoided and countered with Cole super kicking basically everyone for a near fall. Okada then hit a landslide on Cole, but it looked like Cole ducked Rainmaker. In fact, I believe he collapsed yeah. and like legitimately was supposed to take Rainmaker and did not get it in that moment. Yeah. White then caught Okada with Blade Runner and Cole was laying in the corner. He rolled, he like crawls over to Cole, covers him for the one, two, three. White immediately said something to the referee who was Rick Knox. And I don't know if he thought Knox screwed up or if he told him that finish. On replay, Cole seemed either concussed or physically unable to kick out. He did have a torn labrum. He may have been nursing that injury. So there's a chance that Knox called the match in the ring. There's a chance White called the match in the ring. It is very tough to say exactly what happened in the moment, but I will be interested to learn what happened. Regardless, it was a great match, Mm -hmm. but the finish was kind of anticlimactic and you have to take that into account when you're grading the entire thing. I think if it had gone as planned with the the Rainmaker coming, White taking out Okada and jumping on top of Cole, I think you have something there. Although we've seen Okada in Japan hit someone with a Rainmaker, they kick out at two. Usually they need multiple Rainmakers to take down and win the match. So even if that was the finish, if it was a single Rainmaker, like the, the landslide and the Rainmaker, and that was it, I still don't think it necessarily would have been a great finish. So I was at four or five. I'm bringing it down to 4.25 stars, but it's still an A, a very good match. But it the wind got taken out of the sails at the end. Sure. It, 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 was, it was a really fun match. The pop for Okada on the entrance, maybe the biggest pop of the, of the night. That, that was huge. Everybody was really into him. Like I said, crowd was, was more excited for the, for the NJPW guys getting to see them for the first time, I think. This, uh, this kind of started off like the tag match we thought they were going to book and that we kind of preferred, at least on the, uh, on the preview, of, of Paige and Okada versus Cole and Jay White. And it's kind of playing out the way. And they keep kind of teasing Okada Hangman face-to-face, and you want to finally get that. They did eventually build to it, and he got a little bit of it, which, which was nice. Um, definitely an A match. I, I think it was a bit too much Adam Cole, mm-hmm. which is kind of the case for all of AEW. There was, there, was, there was a chunk of Hangman Cole in that match that we didn't need because we've seen it a lot of times already. Um, but, but, but still really good, really fun, really enjoyed it. The finish... Cole did try to kick out at the end. I don't know if he just didn't kick out well enough or, or, or what, but when they showed the replay of the whole thing, Cole like kind of tries to kick out with his left shoulder, and Jay White is like rolling off him at the same time. So I don't yeah, know. Yeah, he if, physically could not do it. I, yeah, it I seemed. don't know if yeah. that kept his arm down or if he just didn't because he certainly couldn't get it higher. I, I don't really know. My thought was that Cole maybe hit his head or something on the scoop kind of sitting power slam that Okada did. I think the landslide, right, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. right before 
the Rainmaker that didn't happen. So perhaps that's <laughs> where things happen. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure we'll find out. Hope Cole's all right. Uh, obviously, that was kind of a weird finish at the end. JR on commentary even says that was anticlimactic, which is not what you want to say at the end of a match when you're an announcer. He had some very strange lines in this match. But <coughs> so weird finish. Hope Cole's okay. The guy, I, I mean, thank God, you know, Jay White was the guy when they did the one, two, three. I, I imagine that was supposed to where, where the one, two, three was supposed to happen. And it wasn't like Rick Knox counted it and the wrong guy won or something like that. So, no, um, I'm sure he was the yeah. person. I, th- that finish, I mean, that's what we talked about on the ultimate preview White pinning Cole. It seemed like it was obvious. So I'm sure those were the two that were supposed to factor in. Yeah, yeah. So anticlimactic end, but still a really fun match. One of those things you never never thought you'd see or just one of the really rare matchups. And it, it, up until the very end, I think lived up to kind of experiencing that as well. So it would be pretty great uh, next year if Okada is the champion to do Okada Hangman Page one-on-one, which I think is what a lot of fans actually wanted because it was teased here to do that match next year when they got into it together and they did not touch much in the match. It was usually other people. That does seem to be like, that could be the main event next year. If they did that, that'd be pretty awesome. All right, let's keep going here. Uh, Zach, and of course we, we hope Adam Cole's okay. I mean, uh, when he did land on the landslide to your point, it was either his head. He may have landed on his shoulder there. It also could have been a stinger situation. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just very tough to tell, but we hope of course, Adam Cole is okay. And the last thing that anyone needs, obviously Cole, himself more importantly than anyone else, but is another injured wrestler in this like endless string of summer injuries that just won't stop every brand, every company. It is just horrendous at this point. Moving on. Uh, Zack Sabre Jr. uh, had a scheduled match. It was going to be against Brian Danielson. Instead, it was going to be against the newest member of the Blackpool Combat Club, a mystery person who it seemed pretty clear was going to make his debut with AEW. And as expected, it was indeed Cesaro, now Claudio Castanoli. Uh, He was introduced as the mystery opponent and the newest Blackpool Combat Club member. Now, if you want to hear our thoughts on Cesaro and AEW, we spent a lot of time talking about it on our Ultimate Preview. You can pause and jump over to that. If you do, it is at the one hour, eight minute mark. It is the podcast directly before this. We talk in length about AEW signing him, what it means for their roster, what it means for Cesaro. Did they need him? Was it a right, the right decision? Blah, blah, blah. So we go into that in depth on that Ultimate Preview. So if you want to pause, you can jump. Or when the show is over, go back to that one hour, eight minute mark on the Ultimate Preview show, and you can hear our full thoughts on Cesaro. Uh, So he got a massive pop, as one would expect. And I loved his theme. It was a sampling of the 1812 Overture, and it was just a total banger. So Mm -hmm. good job, whoever made that. Uh, Claudio hit a European uppercut at the bell and immediately followed with a neuralizer for a neutralizer, I'm sorry, for a false finish that was like 20 seconds into the match. Sabre then slowed things down as usual with joint manipulation. There was a nice spot where Sabre had Claudio in a triangle. They rolled over the ropes and he maintained the grip outside. And then Claudio walked him like around the ring, up the stairs, onto the apron, and then powerbombed him with one arm into the ring. It was very cool. Sabre countered a swing with a guillotine and then got an abdominal stretch on the ropes. Claudio came back with an avalanche gut wrench slam. He tried the swing, but sold an injured arm. They alternated sharpshooters and a heel hook. There was a short, this is wrestling chant. Saber worked the shoulder and taunted with Brian Danielson's kicks. Claudio then caught him with a pop-up European uppercut, discus lariat, and powerbomb for the win. 
It was a very good match. And Claudio Selling of the shoulder, that played the most important role in the entire thing. I went four stars and A-. minus. It was a really strong debut for him overall. He's going to be awesome in Blackpool Combat Club. Uh, he's going to be awesome in the Blood and Guts match on Wednesday. And I'm really curious to see what AEW does with him long-term. Yes. Uh, obviously, we all kind of knew it was Cesaro was coming. We, we, we Again, we talked about that in the preview. We all expected it coming. Pop for him was huge. And AEW, I, I, I talk about their production sometimes. Oh, this it, pissed me off so much. It, if, it's, it, if you're about to say what I think you're going to say. It, it was so okay, but it was not what it should be, which is that when AEW has a surprise return debut or, or someone shows up for the first time, they keep they, they, they move the camera shots from various crowd people for like 10 plus seconds after <laughs> music hits before they finally cut to the stage and you see who it is. It was like a good chunk of time where I'm like, who is it? I like everyone, I see all, everyone I see these, in the crowd. Yeah. Everyone in the crowd knows before everyone at home. Yeah. I, I see these huge the reactions. And again, it's music that it's new. Like it's not like Stone right. Cold's glasses hitting and we know it's so cold. There's another one we're going to get to in this, in this yep. show that the same thing happened. I was like, I don't know what this music is. Who is this? What is going on? What is going on? And eventually we get to, oh, okay, it's oh, great to see him, you know, that, yada, yada, yada. I, you, you can't assume, we, we don't associate that music with anybody. You got to tell us who it is a lot quicker than that so we can get the same reaction when it hits. They, did, yeah. they did camera shot of fans for 10 seconds. Flick to the stage. We saw red and white. Then they went back to fans. And I'm like, wait, I couldn't even read what was on the, the Tron. Like, I didn't even know what it said. Then they finally went back and he walked out. And then they went back to the fans again. So it, was, so it wasn't just the first time. They, like, teased us of, like, hey, we're going to tell you now who it is. And they went right back to the fans again. Yeah. So go ahead. That, that's just the thing. It, it, it annoys me. Even bigger, my bigger reaction than, than Cesaro Claudio showing up was, where do I get that Blackpool Combat Club athletic jacket? Yeah, that was cool. That thing looks awesome. I want to get me one of those. Um, so so that is awesome. Also, Claudio continues to get more and more handsome by the year. <laughs> Dude is incredibly good looking. And just every time you see him last couple of years, awesome. Awesome for him to get that reaction to the crowd. He really soaked it in. He felt like a big deal in a way that he didn't enough in WWE in this moment. And I think the fans understood that whole thing match was 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 great got to show off his strength got to do all these kinds of things i picked him to lose uh in, in our preview you picked him to win so you got this one uh, oh dude i got me. the whole show i batted a thousand on the show yeah but oh yeah i think it was the, i think this might be the only one we disagreed with um so as for future cesaro you know don't need to repeat everything we said in the preview but but the gist of it was we both thought he'd get a huge pop. He'd look awesome in this match, and we're going to love him. But going forward, what is there for him to do? We've seen tons of WWE people come into uh, this company and just kind of float around for a while. Keith Lee is someone who should be in a world title picture that comes to mind. Um, so I, I don't really know what Cesaro's future is. Him being in a faction, I think, makes things more interesting. However... You know, the last month plus of the Blackpool Combat Club has been nothing. You know, after they added Wheeler Yuta, they kind of they've just kind of been doing this blood and gut stuff. They're not really doing much. So we'll see. 
Um, but but overall, really liked it. Uh, one more thing, as we're speaking, uh, Tony Khan's media scrum is going on. Apparently, he signed. He says they signed Cesaro on June second, and it was only like a week ago that Dana Bryan, Brian Danielson, told Tony Khan he probably couldn't do the pay per view, and they suggested Claudio, and Tony Khan said. Funny enough, he's actually under contract. So nobody knew, apparently, that he had signed Cesaro almost a month ago. So apparently that's how things played out. Interesting. Well, to, to a couple of your comments there, let me uh, say this. That's the most action I've had all year. That covers the Keith Lee and the uh, Cesaro rugged good looks portion of that. Yes. Uh, regarding the rest, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with Cesaro. Blackpool Combat Club is the right vehicle for him, especially with Danielson out. But long term, again, we're... we're you know, a little sheepish on, on what's going to happen there. Uh, but please, please listen to that ultimate preview. The one hour, eight minute mark. We have a full conversation about Cesaro, AEW signing WWE wrestlers, the whole shebang. We get into great detail on it. One other thing I wanted to note before we move to the next match. Yes. So after the bell, Jim Ross points out, he goes, he's a pro wrestler, <laughs> not a sports entertainer. And I just found this to be so freaking unnecessary. Like all of these guys and girls, I want to make this very clear. WWE, AEW, New Japan guys only, obviously, etc. Ring of Honor, Impact, AAA. They are all professional wrestlers and sports entertainers. Now, maybe for one person, the you know the dial shifts more one way than another. Maybe someone is seventy five percent professional wrestler and twenty five percent sports entertainer, and the other person seventy five twenty five the other way. But they are all both. And it is kind of absurd now, and it's it's only been enhanced by the Jericho Appreciation Society gimmick because they are sports entertainers, but this happened well before that was even a thing. The constant like hammering into the audience's head that this is professional wrestling. If you watch this, you're a real fan, and if you watch anything else, you're not. And, and it's constant, and it's repetitive. It turns me off as a viewer. Now... Maybe that's a really stupid thing to say, and maybe most people don't feel that way. But at the beginning of the company, year one, when you're making that differentiation, I kind of was cool with it. Like I understood what they were doing. They would mention WWE a lot and punch up and try to get press and attention. That's cool. You are in year three. You are established. You are successful. Do your own thing at this point. The only thing I'll say to it is that it, it, look, it, it's 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 a comment for the AW hardcores. We know that if you're not a hardcore, you probably don't even know what the hell he's talking about because anybody who watches WWE considers it pro wrestling. They don't, you know, nobody calls it sports entertainment. So so that that's weird. One last thing on Cesaro too. Uh, checking through the the Tony Khan scrum, he wasn't sure if he was going to debut Claudio in this show or the Death Before Dishonor. Ring of Honor pay-per-view, which is apparently huh? going to be a thing on Bleacher Report. I don't know when, but... Uh, uh, July 23rd. They're doing it July 23rd. Okay, there you go. So maybe Cesaro is kind of doing part of that Ring of Honor stuff. I, I don't know. We don't really know Ring what Ring of, of Honor, Honor is. Really? Yeah. We don't, yeah. We don't, we don't really know what Ring of Honor oh, is yet. God. I don't know if they're going to get a TV deal or not, but... Regardless, we'll Cesaro for Ring... I mean... I mean, that's I, mean where, I get yeah. it, I guess, on one yeah. respect, but I mean, these... All right, man. I mean, whatever. We, we talked about it ad nauseum already. Yeah. Again, on the ultimate preview, one hour, eight minute mark. And we were already talking about it a little bit too much here. But there's a lot more card to get through. Let us 
move on to the AEW Women's Championship match, Thunder Rosa against Tony Storm. Rosa hit a nice leaping cutter, later countered Storm's Tornado DDT into a fisherman suplex outside. Storm hit a German suplex on the apron, her Tornado DDT outside, and a hip attack plus another Tornado DDT inside for a near fall. Rosa hit a code breaker, running knee, Death Valley driver, and Thunder driver for a 2.8. This got Rosa angry that Storm kicked out. Storm came back with a German suplex, but sold a shoulder injury while trying Storm Zero. Rosa immediately took advantage with Final Reckoning for the win in 12 minutes. They shook hands after the bell because they're both baby faces. So this was extremely well wrestled. The good storyline, I thought, threading the entire match. The crowd could not have given a single shit. It was dead. Okay. Now, the difference in energy level for the men and women in AEW, it's kind of infuriating to me when people say, hey, I wish the wrestling, the women's wrestling in AEW is better. I wish they gave it more attention. Well, look, maybe it works both ways, right? Like maybe on one hand, AEW only putting one women's match on per show. Uh, for Dynamite, it's always at the 9.30 mark, the hour and a half mark. They get anywhere between 6 and 12 minutes, and that's all they get. Well, that is creating an audience that doesn't give a shit or doesn't seem to give as much of a shit about women's wrestling. At the same time, if you're that crowd and you do give a shit about women's wrestling, you tell the people, Tony Khan and the people watching, that you do give a shit by cheering and getting off, off your ass and cheering for these women. It was a very good match. I went 3.75 stars B+. I honestly think it was better, but I think the crowd reaction didn't like allow me to get as emotionally invested in it as I otherwise would have. And I also thought it was the best that Thunder Rosa has looked as champion. Now, we discussed this in the Ultimate Preview, Chris. This was another situation that AEW had the opportunity to push the title onto someone who recently joined the promotion and had a shitload of momentum. They did not do it with Ruby Riot. They did not do it, or, or Ruby Soho, I'm sorry. They did not do it with another of a number of other WWE stars that had came in and, and been part of title matches. And I, as I predicted, and I think you did the other way, they didn't do it here either. They didn't yep. take advantage of that opportunity. This is that one time where I wish they did. I knew they wouldn't, but I wish they did because I think it would have actually pushed some momentum and put some wind into the sails of the AEW women's picture. Yep. I went with heart overhead uh, on the pick. I picked Tony Storm. I said, Look, she, you, she's got momentum. She's got a lot of fans. I know Thunder Rosa's reign has not been strong, uh, but that's not her fault. Just just go with Tony Storm, change it up, move forward, because people really want to see that. And yeah, crowd was not really into this match. Disappointing. I thought it was a great match. I thought they both looked great. I, th this was like, this was one of those, like AEW could have like two major stars here. Great wrestling. Like there's so much you can do for this. I was surprised Thunder Rosa won, and I think the crowd was too, because th there wasn't much of a reaction on that there either. Wasn't. And I think it, I think You're a Tony right. Storm win would have gotten them more into it. So I, I don't know what Tony Storm does from here now, because um, you know she 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 fought through Britt Baker to get to this point, only mm -hmm. to lose. Now are they going to pull a Thunder Rosa situation and <laughs> pull have a Thunder her, Rosa, have Thunder her Rosa, win yeah. the title two weeks from now or something <laughs> like that? They've done that a couple of times with various belts. I I thought this was a great match. Both the women deserve a lot of credit for that. Uh, I'm glad they got this this match on this card. Wish the crowd had been more into it. Um, and I was surprised again, just really kind of surprised by the result. I don't I don't know if Thunder Rosa you know turns heel now or something like that. But if you're no. going to keep the title on her, you got to do something with her. And her previous two months or whatever with this belt, they've done nothing with her. 
she's been non-existent. And even when we did see her, it's her running in to save someone. Like, that's it. Uh, I, I actually disagree with you. I wish this was not on the card. I wish they had saved this for Blood and Guts. And they did a 9 p.m. main event or, or a 8.30 main event or whatever. And then the main event, main event, Blood and Guts itself. I think it would have been a way stronger TV show. And it would have been way more interesting with a better crowd for that particular match on that show. So I wish it wasn't on the show, but I'm glad they had the match. If, if, just, if it's not on here, then it's an all-men pay-per-view. and that that Yeah, but we, it's a we, dual brand and it is, doesn't have I, women. It is, but in fairness, we would be criticizing AEW for that if they didn't have a woman. I don't think I would not have criticized them. It's a dual brand show. New Japan doesn't have women's wrestling. I know, but I still would have. Okay, you could you could have. I, I certainly would not have. That's It's a unique situation is what I would have chalked it up to. Uh, you know what they could do? They could have done to make up for it? Put two women's matches on Dynamite, but they wouldn't do that anyway. All right, let's keep going. IWGP United States Heavyweight Championship. Will Ospreay, the champion against Orange Cassidy. Now, earlier backstage, Juice Robinson actually had the physical U.S. title and talked about how whoever won the title was champion in name only. So he said Ospreay currently was, and if Orange won the title, he would be the same. For those who don't know, Robinson had to relinquish the title when he was unable to defend it but he refused to actually return the strap because he said he's still champion. It was a really good piece of storyline uh, continuity for the New Japan viewers, so I'm glad they added that into the show. Uh, there was a touch of comedy at the bell, but not that much. They traded Cool Huracaranas early. Osprey did a really sweet spinning backbreaker. Then the match slowed down massively. He put his hand in Orange's pocket, only to reveal a middle finger. Orange then put his hands in his own pockets and did comedy kicks before avoiding the Oz cutter. And that is when business finally picked up. He awesomely countered Osprey midair into Stun Dog Millionaire, adding a Mishinoku driver for a 2.9. Orange hit a Tornado DDT and a Tope Suicida on Osprey, plus a springboard floating bro on Aussie Open outside, and an avalanche diving DDT on Osprey inside for another 2.9. Osprey caught Orange with Spanish Fly. Osprey's head broke the ring post camera, like for real, it was pretty cool. Uh, he missed two moonsaults and hit a shooting star press all in succession, like he landed, you know, he missed, missed, and then hit all together. I think it was the best sequence of the entire show, not just to that point, but maybe the entire show. It was spectacular for me. Uh, after multiple counters, Orange hit Beach Break for a 2.99 false finish. Osprey countered the Orange Punch with two Oz Cutters for a near fall. There were many more signature counters, with Orange countering Stormbreaker into an awesome Hurricanrana before Osprey delivered the Hidden Blade for a false finish and a huge pop. He immediately followed with Stormbreaker, silencing the crowd just as it had gotten onto its feet for the 1-2-3 to retain the title. Aussie Open kind of attacked after the bell, but they didn't really do anything because they were waiting for Rapongi Vice to make the save. But this was all for a surprise appearance of Shibata, who looked like a million bucks, and it was a really, really big surprise. He cleared house and basically started a program for the title with Osprey. Orange then took his own glasses and put them on Shibata, he no-sold it with a death stare. That was pretty funny. So first, the match, okay? Absolutely outstanding match. I think I said on the Ultimate Preview, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, that this had an underdog chance to be match of the night. I guess as underdog as a Will Ospreay match can be, given he's one of the best wrestlers in the world. Anyway, it was easily the match of the night at this point, and that's what I wrote. But everything that followed it, to me... None of it matched it in ring in terms of top to bottom, excitement, storyline, just everything. This false finishes, this completely delivered. And I loved the finish of Orange getting the kick out. The entire crowd 
rising to its feet, going absolutely bonkers, and then Osprey immediately silencing them with his finisher in the one, two, three. That is perfect professional wrestling. It was exactly what I wanted to see from these two. I forgot if I gave you the grade, 4.5 stars and an A. The limited comedy, not doing a lot, that was appreciated as well. The Shabbata surprise was a huge hit with the crowd. It popped me at home. Really, I just enjoyed everything about this. It was, for me, the segment of the entire show. Yes, this was the most fun part of the whole show. It it really did hit that exact balance of a little bit of comedy, but also a lot of really great wrestling. When Early on in the match, when Orange is running around doing his thing with his hands in his pocket, and he tries to pin Osprey with with his hands in his pocket. I popped huge for that. The dude's just going for a pin with, with no arms. Absolutely hilarious. This was um, this was just a lot of fun. I watched this show, by the way, with my brother and my dad, who are coming with me to Blood and Guts on Wednesday. And I think this was the most enjoyment we all had from the whole show. Uh, this This was match of the night for me as well. This is you know what it is honestly it, it it's a mix of wrestling and, and sports entertainment if you want to call it that 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 that's and i think that's why everybody just kind of got into it because that's what that balance does you know orange cassidy he's kind of he's cut back on the comedy stuff it's not like when he debuted this wasn't really like the pock match back in the day cuz that was almost full comedy this was a lot more orange getting fired up doing stuff like that and and that's where the character needed to go but he can still do those comedy things that the crowd loves. This was this was great. There were really good kickouts. Uh, Osprey had some great kickouts, uh, which really sold the false finishes. Um, awesome stuff. The Shibata appearance at the end. Same problem with the Cesaro debut. A lot of shots of the crowd before we finally saw who came out. I di- I was unfamiliar with the music. I didn't know who that who it was. Uh, I'm vaguely familiar with Shibata, so I can't say much to him about what it what it means to see him there. But this was the first part where I got confused of like, everybody's going nuts. Show me who this is so I can react to it. We finally got it. So that was another one of these that I said I was going to mention. Good stuff. So let's move on to the AEW All-Atlantic Championship. They were going to crown the first ever champion for this title. We had Pac against Miro. Malachi Black, and Clark Connors, who was in as the replacement for Ishii. Of course, that made Connors the obvious fall guy in the match. The heels were on the same page for a bit until they argued and fought. Pack hit his cool corkscrew tope after 10 minutes, plus an avalanche shotgun dropkick on Miro. Black grabbed a table and leaned it on the barricade. Pack ran Miro into the ring post before Connors speared his ass through the table to a really big pop, and I didn't expect that at all. Then he went on a really hot run with two near falls. Black stopped a black arrow and Miro came into the ring for a super duper plex on all three guys. Hit Pack with a pump kick and then locked in game over. Pack nearly grabbed the ropes, so Miro put it back in. Black broke it by spraying mist into Miro's eyes. And then Pack took advantage of an arm bar by hitting black arrow onto Black before forcing Connors to tap with the brutalizer in 16 minutes. This was one of a couple matches on the card that was very slow for the first half, but picked up massively in the finish. I didn't find it to be enough to jump into the A range, even though it was really exciting. It just wasn't really there for me, like altogether. It just felt like it was two different matches kind of put together, but it was really entertaining. I went 3.75 stars in a B plus. 
With Ishii out of the match, Pac was the obvious and correct winner. We did address this on the Ultimate Preview. I think I told you it was either going to be Ishii or Pac. Yes. And obviously without Ishii, it was Pac. And I think he was the perfect person to win the championship. It gives him a little bit of momentum. And he goes back to the United Kingdom all the time. So he theoretically will be able to defend this title in other promotions over there, which I think is a really good decision. Funny thing watching this match, um, it was the first time my dad had ever seen Malachi Black. And he was just blown away by him. Like like the kicks and the different stuff he was doing. He thought mm-hmm. he was awesome. And he goes, he goes, um, man, WWE should sign this guy. <laughs> and my brother and I had to tell him, well, funny thing about that, uh, they just let him go for no reason whatsoever. No reason whatsoever. And he couldn't believe it. Um, th- this was fun. I-, I-, I enjoyed it. I thought, you know, it was kind of... Two stories going on. There was the the, the Pac Malachi Black doing its own thing, and then there was kind of Miro Clark Connors doing his thing, and Miro just kind of being dismissive of him the whole time. They kind of made Con like Connors was obviously the fall guy, and so they, it, it, they he, and he looked so small that it kind of felt like he didn't deserve to be there. But that made his hope spots work even bigger. Yes. When he gets the spear through the table, there was, a, there was another spear in the middle of the ring. Um, people got into it because they didn't see that coming. So, so I thought the match was actually booked pretty well, all things considered, because four-man matches can be really kind of a mess. Uh, so, so this all worked. I, I, I really enjoyed this. Probably give it BB-plus type of range. Uh, we said this on the opening preview, but the All-Atlantic title, I think, or at least should be AEW's international title where you're not going to you'll see it from time to time on awtv when pox in town but for the most part if he's out in 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 england or or somewhere else in europe just kind of doing his thing over there he'll have the title with him that helps spread the aw brand which i think is a good idea for for aw considering they have way too many titles as it is if this is one that's not going to be really on tv much uh i think that works for sure yeah i thought it was very entertaining mikey uh Mulville, I'm sorry if I said that wrong, at Mikey underscore Trolls, he wrote in, couldn't stop thinking that they would all be great in the IC title scene with Gunther. (laughs) And I actually, the reason I read this on the show, I actually had the exact same thought watching the match. It felt like it was a really good fatal four-way WWE Intercontinental Championship match. Like that is what I thought of. And then I was like, man, those are like, upper mid-card talents that they had all of them with the exception of Connors, of course, but the other three guys, they had all of them and they booked them all incredibly poorly. And here they are putting on a fantastic match all together for AEW. So I just couldn't shake that. Yep. And it was cool to see that Mikey and other people, I'm sure yourself included, yeah. uh, had those same thoughts. And I, I think the crowd was, by the way, the crowd for this show, we'll talk about more at the end. Crowd was great. Yeah. Other than that women's match, they were in it the whole time, and this was a match I think that got elevated by the crowd. If it was in, if this was, if this was in WWE and it was an intercontinental thing going on, I don't think the crowd would have been as into it. I just think obviously the AEW atmosphere is different. Also, I do hate the name All Atlantic. I think you could have just called it the International Championship, the AEW International Championship. Well, it's, the problem was all inter- we already, we already talked about. Intercontinental and I don't, didn't I didn't, didn't we already talk about this or did I do it solo? Uh, on show? I don't remember. 
Well, the problem with it is the people who are competing in it aren't all Atlantic. Right. That too. That too. <laughs> it's just, they're on the Red Sea, the Dead Sea. They had Ishii, you know, the Pacific Ocean. Like, it's just, it's just, it's just a terrible title name. It's a good looking title. It's a terrible, terrible title name. All right. Let's move on to a couple more championships. The winner takes all match. The Ring of Honor and IWGP Tag Team Championships, FTR, the ROH champions, United Empire, the IWGP champions, and Rapongi Vice in a triple threat match. Very quickly on Rampage, we had Cash Wheeler against Jeff Cobb. Uh, Cash picked Cobb off the ropes for a powerbomb for a near fall. Cobb uh, soon hit Wheeler with Tour of the Islands, got the win. It was a good, not great match, 3.25 stars and a B. The partners and everyone else in the match brawled immediately after the bell for a good five minutes until the show ended. That was the other brawl I was talking about. I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned it. As far as this match on Forbidden Door. So this was second on the main show. It featured the far inferior rules where only two men were legal at any given time, despite it being a triple threat match, despite two championships being on the line. Dax Harwood sold a shoulder injury right after the bell and got brought to the back. It seemed like a work. Jeff Cobb showed out really early. Dax quickly made his way back with his shoulder wrapped up to a pop, so it was clearly bullshit. He hit Cobb with two German suplexes, uh, and Trent Beretta helped him for a superplex. Cash blind tagged for a huge splash and a 2.8 false finish. Rocky Romero and Wheeler teamed up for a spike pile driver on the Great Ocon. We got signature move spam for a bit with Cobb hitting a really insane standing moonsault. Yeah. Trent got a shoulder up on a false finish for the against the IWGP champions. Rapongi teamed up for a strong zero with a missile dropkick for a broken fall. The referee then counted to three on Dax in what was a total botch that did not end the match, and it got a you fucked up chant from the crowd. It was blatant. FTR then caught Romero for the big rig and the one, two, three to claim the titles with a huge pop in a 16 minute match. So the botch slowed down what was a really strong finish, but it didn't hamper the match much. FTR winning was the obvious move. In fact, now that I say that, every single match on this card, and it is, I'm not saying it in a bad way, but every single match on this card was completely predictable. And I'm not trying to do a Barry Horowitz, but my point is, on the Ultimate Preview, Chris, I said, I batted a thousand. I didn't just bat a thousand. Every single time we talked about who would take the fall or how the match would finish, it's literally exactly what happened on the show. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes, as Triple H would say, sometimes predictable things are good. And in this case, I'll largely say that they were. But I will note when we get into the final grades, one of the reasons that my opinion will be what it was is that nothing surprising actually happened on the entire show. There was never a moment where it was like, I didn't expect that other than Shibata coming out. That was a nice surprise. But I'm saying in terms of match finishes, decisions, title winners, all that type of stuff, none of it was surprising whatsoever, at least for me. As far as this going back to this, uh, the Dax kayfabe injury, it just kind of felt unnecessary. I would have rather had him in the match the entire time than have him leave and come back. But despite the inferior triple threat rules, there's plenty of tagging and it was clear who was legal the entire time. That's a positive. Mm-hmm. So I went four stars and an A minus. The Dax injury, they worked me. They got me. So I, I was happy to be worked. I wasn't sure. Like the way it happened and the way he kind of came out of the ring it it felt real. And when they showed him going back very briefly, they just do a quick cut to him walking back and then back to the ring. And the commentary was like, oh, no. And I was like, hmm, if this was WWE, I'd know it wasn't work because they wouldn't show us. 
But I don't know how AEW would handle these things. I thought it was real. And so then when he comes back and he realizes, okay, it was a work. But that, but I, I popped for it. I, it. It was great. It, it worked. Was it unnecessary? Probably. But uh, I thought they executed it well. Um, match was fun. Obviously, like you said, not the right rules for a triple threat tag team. But it was it stayed pretty clear who who was who was uh, legal and all that. Enjoyed the hell out of the, out of the match. This was the this was the one with Caprice Coleman on commentary. The four man mm-hmm. booth again. We don't need it. It was too much. The sell by uh, who t- who took the pin? It was Rocky Romero. I think took the pin. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was a great sell of the big rig on the finish. Tremendous sell there. The counting the the, the botch. Uh, count at the end, obviously a problem. Um, but, you know, again, we got to the result we wanted, so you kind of look past it. FTR is now the ROH, IB, uh, IWGP, and AAA mm-hmm. tag team champions all at once. That's awesome. They also cut a great promo after the match. I think NJPW tweeted it out. Um, so, sounds like they're looking forward to going to Japan and doing some stuff, so that's going to be well, pretty cool. FTR they freaking rule. Seven star FTR, this new thing kind of that they're going with. I love it. I love them. They're awesome. Very cool to see them win. Yeah, I assume they're going to be in the World Tag League over in New Japan, which would be fun. But don't don't just forget the fact that they, yeah, they're holding these three titles now. But they're previous AEW champions. They won the SmackDown and Raw and NXT titles. And they probably have some other ones that I haven't really, you know, encountered as well. But you're talking about nearly 10 different championships that they've held yeah, for promotions, right? And it's it's absolutely wild. They're on a great run as a tag team. I'm glad AEW is behind them. And yeah, so when we talk about people moving over from WWE and being improved, for a long time, FTR to me was kind of exactly the same. But Correct. ever since this run has started and Dax has had the singles matches with Punk and they're kind of doing this stuff, FTR is being utilized so freaking well by AEW right now. Yes. They deserve a lot of credit, and AEW deserves a lot of credit for how they're being booked. This Both is the kind of run that puts FTR in the all-time great tag team category. Well, it gets yeah, it gets them in the conversation. It gets, it gets them into. It starts to kind of get them down that road. Yeah, yeah, agreed. All right, we had the Young Bucks and El Fantasmo against Sting, Darby Allen, and Shingo Takagi. Now, this was scheduled as an eight-man match, turned into a six-man match because. Uh, I believe Takahashi was, um, he had a fever, I think, and he wasn't able to travel over. So Sting didn't show up when his music hit. A double of him was shown in the rafters, old school style. When the lights went off and came back on, he was atop the entrance and he splashed the heels. There was a mix of comedy and good action early. I was surprised how much comedy they did. And I wasn't familiar with Phantasma, so I didn't realize that that was the type of wrestler he was. But he tried to twist Sting's nipples and then later punched him in the balls. And that is a real sentence that I just said. Uh, Darby caught Phantasma with an over-the-top cutter and the Bucks hit everyone with super kick party except Sting completely no-sold it and the fans popped. Uh, the heels went on a run of splashes and high risks. Phantasma walked the tightrope for a springboard moonsault. It was very cool. Sting went for a tope when the heels caught him with a triple super kick. The Bucks collided as Sting avoided a BTE trigger and hit a double scorpion death drop. Sting missed a spot and then left the ring when he was supposed to be in it. So he re-entered the ring and then <laughs> twisted Phantasmo's nipples himself. Again, a real sentence I said. Uh, Darby hit a coffin drop outside. Shingo finally got some run and hit Last of the Dragon on Phantasmo for the win. Now, Phantasmo was the obvious fall guy in the match, and the faces were the obvious winners. 
No harm with that. I'm just saying. Uh, but it, what I liked a lot is they had Shingo get the win because he's the more prominently booked guy of the trio. Yes, despite Sting, despite Darby Allen, Shingo being the one to kind of get over in the match, I appreciated. And I'm sure New Japan kind of insisted that in some of these matches, their people were the ones in the finish, the, the, the six mans and the eight mans, those types of matches. Now, I know fans love comedy and they somehow, I've never been a part of this. They love the invincible sting stuff, like no selling chair shots, no selling moves, whatever. It takes me personally out of the match. These are my grades. It's my opinions on what I think the matches are. I went 3.5 stars and a B on this. I know someone else is going to be way higher because it's a Young Bucks match. It's a Darby Allen match. It's an AEW match. And it's a New Japan match. But I thought it was a very good, very entertaining match. Just nothing more than it. I actually thought the referees, to give them credit, did a much improved job with tagging <laughs> on every match yes. except this one yes. on the show. There were multiple tag matches. They counted all the tags. They kept order. It was really freaking good except this match, which was a total mess. Um, and that's it. So 3-5, good match. Yeah, the, one of the early tag matches, um, my my dad had made a comment about who the legal people are. and My brother and I explained who it was. And we said, if you think it's confusing now, just wait. There's going to be a match later on this card. It's not going to be clear who is who. <laughs> and that was this match, and that's what happened. Yeah. Th- this um, this ended up being, you know, you know, when the show first got announced, they hyped it up as it was going to be Undisputed Era versus the Bullet Club. It obviously didn't turn into that. It didn't even turn into the eight-man that they wanted it to be. But honestly, the six-man that they came up with, with uh, El El Fantasmo doing comedy stuff with the Young Bucks, I think this all worked great. I I, Mm -hmm. I think it's not a match that means anything. There's no title. It's just for fun. And everybody had fun. You know, I, I, I think the Sting entrance was weird. Like, you, you didn't need to fake show him up in the rafters. You could have just, lights go out, lights go on, he jumps off the stage. It was, it was kind of confusing what was going on there. Uh, Young Bucks coming out to the Bullet Club music, wearing their old Ring of Honor Bullet Club gear was very cool. Uh, my, my dad had not seen the, the Bullet Club. This was the first time, uh, first time seeing the Young Bucks, and he thought they were really fun. So that's just a outside observer's thought on them. Um, yeah, not much to say other than this was just fun, you know. It, I know you graded a, a B, B plus or something like that. But for what it was, where it was on the card, it, it was what it needed to be. It, it, it worked. Real quick before we move on, I was able to see a clip of the finish of that IWGP World Heavyweight Championship match. So I did want to clarify this before we got out of the show. So I think I've figured out what has happened to Adam Cole at the end of this match and why everything transpired the way it did. So basically... Okada was doing his ripcord rainmaker on Cole. He grabs his arm, he spins him around. And as Cole purposely ducks the rainmaker, which I speculated maybe he wasn't supposed to, he did purposely duck it. But as he did, Okada continued holding on to his wrist and you can see his shoulder bend backwards mm. and pop out of the socket or tear his labrum or something happened with his shoulder in that moment because he immediately goes down. He immediately crawls to the corner. And that's where he, uh, Jay White and Okada do their thing. And then White just covers Cole and gets the win. So it seems like it's a shoulder injury, not a concussion. And again, I don't know what Rick Knox knew or what Jay White knew. There does seem to be a moment where when Cole is crawling into the corner, 
he says something to Jay White because they like, like White bends down and kind of looks at him a little bit. So he may have said to Jay White, send it home. I can't continue. And then all of a sudden, White covers him, tells Knox to count three, hmm. and we get the end of the match. Good. So that's my that's my evaluation of like that seven to ten second segment. And I did want to clarify that because I didn't want wrong information on the podcast. That that, that would make more sense if, if Cole wanted to go home then, as opposed to he was supposed to get the Rainmaker or something. I don't know. Good to know. Yeah, so so it, ju- it does seem like that was the situation, and I just wanted to clarify it. Anyway, the final match of the main card, Chris Jericho, Sammy Guevara, Minoru Suzuki against Eddie Kingston, Wheeler Yuta, and Shota Umino. This was announced with a stipulation that the winner would get an advantage at Blood and Guts. The stipulation made sense, given the event is in 72 hours. But Chris, I did not recall that being a stipulation previously. Did I miss that on advertising, or was that always a stipulation? I did not. It's possible I missed it again when they're rattling off 50 different matches that are coming up. Sometimes we miss things. Sometimes they don't make things very clear. I didn't know until this match started as well. Okay. Unfortunately, there's a lot to talk about in this match, uh, but not really much after the match. So long story short, Yuta hit Jericho with six German suplexes in succession for early near fall. Got a really big pop from the crowd that it deserved. Then everyone brawled. Kingston tagged in. Jericho tagged out with Suzuki. Their sequence got another really nice pop. Shooter had a nice run when Jericho uh, broke a fisherman suplex pinfall before eating a cannonball off the ring apron. Guevara uh, followed with an Escalera shooting star press before Yuta hit a tope con hero. Kingston hit a tope suicida. And then Suzuki pretended as if he was going to do one, but ultimately did not because, of course, he is smart. Uh, Sammy caught Yuta with a standing Spanish fly, but Kingston blind tagged for a backdrop driver. Kingston dropped Suzuki with a spinning backfist but ate a German from Jericho. Shooter ate a cutter from Sammy. Then Sammy ate a high-risk move from Yuta in what was easily the sequence of the match. Uh, Jericho caught Shooter with a codebreaker for a 2.5. Shooter came back with an avalanche power slam. Jericho went for a line salt when Kingston drilled him with uh, Shooter getting a 2.8. Sammy hit Shooter in the back with a bat, but he dodged Judas effect and hit a tornado DDT plus a paradigm shift for a false finish. Shooter then put in the walls of Jericho, but it got broken. Suzuki took Kingston out with a gotch pile driver. Shooter was later celebrating when he ate Judas Effect clean for the pinfall in 19 minutes. This started and finished slow, but the two sequences that I just detailed were a ton of fun. I wrote down 3.5 stars and a B. I'm wondering if on rewatch I go higher because that sounds a lot more exciting than I maybe gave it credit for, but B, B plus match. You can't really ask for much more from a low-card six-man tag team match. It was also the right booking to have the heels get the win, especially given the stipulation. And lastly, Shooter looked great. The kid has a really bright future. It was cool that they called back to the Jericho stuff from Japan, and a good portion of this match was about making Shooter, which was awesome. Yes. And comparisons to Tanahashi were, because of his hair color and the way he looked and acted a couple times during the match, they were pretty tough to avoid for Shooter. You don't want to put that on anyone, just like you don't want to say Austin Theory is going to be the next John Cena or Randy Orton. But there were moments during this match where you looked at Shooter and you're like, there's something there with this kid. He's going to be really good. So good match and a good moment for him. This was a lot longer and more fun than I expected it to be. This ends up as the second longest match on the card, 19 minutes. This was by the time this match ended, we were a half hour into the show. Mm-hmm. And I texted, I texted you. I said, looking forward to starting this podcast at three in the morning. Um, 
th- this was again they threw a stipulation on at the beginning as, as far as I knew and didn't expect much and then it got really crazy those last five ten minutes I, I did not expect it to be that good that fun I was completely unfamiliar with with the shooter guy and he looked awesome like they really went out of their way to make him look good even though he was the guy who took the pin so I think NJPW uh, has to be happy about that uh, AEW happy about it as well so um, yeah this was a really really hot opener you said maybe you graded it too well or, or leaned too much too low it. too low I said Oh, too low. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it maybe I don't know. Like it, it, it was, it was just a lot of fun and just kind of came out of nowhere as a match. It was like if the whole card's gonna be like this, look out. Yeah. And it, it kind of was. So it, it it did set the stage nicely for the entire yeah. show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now there were four buy-in matches. I thought there were only two, so I tuned in at seven thirty. <laughs> but apparently the buy-in maybe started at seven. It did. Uh, so I don't know if they weren't announced or I missed them from Rampage or I don't know what happened, but Lance Archer beat Nick Camarado, uh, Hiroki Goto and Yoshihashi also beat QT Marshall and Aaron Solo. Apparently the highlight of these two matches was QT hitting a 450 splash, which I wouldn't have thought he could do, but I maybe need to go see that. Uh, now, the other two buy-in matches that I did see, and Chris, I don't know if you did, but I'll go through them quickly. Uh, the first was Gun Club and Max Caster against the NJPW Dojo. Caster crushed it on the mic again. Yes. Danhausen taunted the ass boys on the screen before the bell. So they ran backstage, which made it a two on four match. Billy Gunn got the hot tag and hit a famouser with Caster adding the mic drop for the win. This was like the bare minimum. I have no idea why this was on last. They had Swerve in our glory. That should have been the final match. I gave it two stars and a C minus. Did you see this? Did you care? Yes, I, I saw the whole buy-in. Uh, I don't understand why the gun club had to run away? Like, why did you need to make this a two-on-four match that the two men win? Seemed completely unnecessary. Uh, but the the acclaimed gun club entrance continues to be hugely over. It's, it's been a fun twist on it. This is the exact type of thing you throw in the buy-in. So it, it, was, it was fine. It was fun. It was whatever. It was just a buy-in match. So, yeah. And then we had Swerve in Our Glory against El Desperado and Yoshinobu uh, Kanemaru. Uh, Lee and Swerve both took a beating for a long time. They worked from under for well more of this match than I expected. Swerve came back with a rolling flatliner and they got put in figure four and stretch mufflers simultaneously before Lee broke both submissions. Lee had Kanemaru ready for a spirit bomb, but Swerve got knocked off the ropes and Kanemaru spit whiskey in Lee's face for a near fall. Swerve had a really great sequence jumping off Lee's back for a kick and then jumping over the ropes for a double stomp onto Desperado, who was hanging by his feet off the apron. Lee then hit Big big Bang Catastrophe for the win. The Swerve Desperado sequence that I just described, it was probably one of like the top five sequences on the entire show. It was just really freaking cool the way they did that. Um, Literally, as soon as the bell rang, Powerhouse Hobbs and Ricky Starks interrupted on the mic from a suite to put themselves over. There was absolutely no point to it. They didn't make a challenge. Just They just said, you guys suck, we're awesome. That, that was really the entire thing. The finish of the match did boost this, but I went 2.5 and a C. Uh, it was otherwise completely forgettable, mediocre at best. Swerve Desperado one-on-one. Let's do that next year. Total banger. I, I imagine that would be a fantastic match, but this, it was forgettable. I mean, it, it was forgettable, but I thought it was real. I thought it was a really solid match. Like as far as buy-ins go, like this was a lot better than it had any business being. 
Uh, so, so, so that was the match itself. Really liked it. As for the post match stuff, completely unnecessary. And I'm tired of seeing those guys together. I'm generally tired of seeing Swerve and Keith Lee together because they should be off doing their own things. They were kind of doing their breakup with with the battle with the with the battle royal. Then they're not doing it. I don't really know what they're doing. It is what it is. Do I also have a, two quick thoughts on the other buy-in matches that you didn't watch? Sure. Go for um, it. Archer versus Nick Camarado. Fun little hoss fight. Uh, Archer almost knocked himself out again on a uh, jumping spear rolling thing into the ring. He did. He landed on his head, but he is okay, thankfully. Um, and the other thing is QT Marshall, I, you hate him, but he's really good at getting heat. In the crowd, when I, when, I, when I went to Battle of the Belts and saw him there, this match too, crowd hated him. So credit to him for... He he is a guy who does get actual some, some real heat. So, you know, obviously not a guy you want to move up the card, but a, a guy you throw in a buy-in to get the crowd uh, into it. Uh, it was fine. It worked. All righty. So that is the instant analysis of AEW and JPW Forbidden Door, which means we are in the last segment of the show, our post-pay-per-view grades. Now, a reminder of where we stood coming into it as I delay and scroll up here. Chris and I were both at flat B's. And the listeners broke down as a low B, almost a B minus. It was 19% A, 50% B, 26% C, and 6% D and F. So with that, let's go back to the getting overheads on our Twitter account at getting overcast and go over that poll. 41.6% were A, 42.5% B, 12.4% C, and 3.5% D. I actually forgot to say D to F and it was just D, but I don't think anyone who voted D or F would have been legitimate because there's no way that was a D or F pay-per-view. I think we can all agree. So again, uh, 41.6, 42.5, and 12.4 for the first three slots. So with A and B being almost equal and C having that 12%, I think that is definitely an A minus B plus range. You do have to lean towards the B plus given it has the majority plus the Cs. So the fans, the listeners, the getting overheads, Say this was a B-plus pay-per-view. Chris, what say you? I'm right there on that edge. It, right between that B-plus, a B plus, A-minus, mm-hmm. that 89-90 grade exactly if, if, you're, if you're grading yeah. a paper. Um, this was it, it, it was far higher than my expectations than, than a B. It, it was really fun start to finish. This show was a lot better than Double or Nothing. Way better. I, I, I really, I think I may have given Double or Nothing a C plus or something when we did yeah. that. Yeah, we it, were it, I, I did not. I did not like it. When AW does, when AW does good stories and bad stories, it makes the bad stories really stick out, which is something we got at Double or Nothing. This had no stories, so it, it was all kind of on a level field, and nothing had to be bigger than what it was. The show had moments it had things you're going to remember and stuff like that but in the end i don't know how much of it mattered you do have ftr getting tag team titles uh you do have an interim aw champion being crowned but i don't know if any of this really if that wasn't a surprise especially mock so i don't know how much it really affects a ton moving forward i'm gonna say 
B plus. I'm going to go with that 89, but it's real close. Yeah, I'm right there. I was literally going, I was, I was hoping you would pick one letter or the other, and then I was <laughs> going to say 8990 is literally what I was going to say. Uh, I, I'm right there with you. It was right on the border. Um, in the moment, you know, the way I look at the show, I was super, super sports entertained yes. by professional wrestling. Okay, it was a very damn good wrestling show. They delivered on that aspect. The point you make about nothing really being memorable, like I will never watch this show again. No, I don't know. There, there were memorable things. No, no, no. I'm I, saying, I'm saying there is there is no reason for me to ever watch this pay-per-view again. I'm not gonna watch the Moxley Tanahashi match. I'm not gonna watch Osprey and Orange Cassidy. I'm not gonna watch the IWGP heavyweight championship match. FTR, maybe I'll go after the clip of them winning the titles to see the crowd reaction. Um, Cesaro's entrance, maybe, but it wasn't even a surprise entrance, like when John Moxley debuted or something that was monumental and historical, like when CM Punk returned after seven years. It was just a really nice debut with a really good reception. So my point is, an A pay-per-view is something that I cannot wait to watch again. Mm -hmm. That is almost always my rule. Any company, okay? Um, I don't remember what we gave uh, WWE Hell in a Cell recently. I don't remember whatever, but there was... I, when we finished our podcast and I published it and I went to bed, I immediately watched the main event again. Mm -hmm. In fact, I've seen that now four times. There is no match on this show that I'm going to watch a second time. You, it's not you saying it wasn't a you good show. You're not going to watch Osprey, uh, Orange Doubtful. Cassidy again? Doubtful. It was very good, but I've seen so many awesome Will Osprey matches. It's yeah. like, do I really need to see the Orange Cassidy comedy gimmick kind of, a little bit match where there wasn't a title change? No, I, I kind of really don't. It was good. If, there, if it comes across my YouTube, I'll watch it. If there's a highlight package, I'll watch it. But I'm not going to sit through another 20-minute match of that. But again, the point really is the show. Am I going to watch the show again? And I'm not. So when it comes to that, I can't... It's not really an A in that mm -hmm. capacity. And I actually do disagree with you slightly. There was a little bit more storytelling than I believe you're giving it credit for, but it was minimal. It was very minimal and in certain spots. I, I believe, you know, when you kind of look at it, the IWGP Heavyweight Championship, World Heavyweight Championship, the end of that match, um, the post-match attack at the end of the show, a couple other elements that were just kind of the, the blading in the main event. It's just kind of like, why did these things need to happen? Why did you have to do this, this, and this? So at the end of the day, if I'm picking nits, which is what we do when we do our grades and our analysis, I go with 89 over 90, and I side with you. It was a B-plus show, but... It's like literally as good of a B plus show as you possibly can be yeah. because the wrestling was so strong and it was so entertaining. And you can have a really good wrestling show that does not entertain you where you just appreciate the quality of the in-ring product. But this was both. Like I said, that's why I was criticizing Jim Ross earlier. It was great professional wrestling. That was very sports entertaining. And that is exactly what I wanted from a dual branded AEW New Japan pay-per-view. Now, next year when they do Forbidden Door again, I hope it's the dream matches. Like that's what I really want. And I, I hope it's not booked the same way as this. I hope they give it more time. They develop storylines. They have people go over to Japan, but they had to do what they had to do this year. They did a really, really good job, but I want to see it meshed more mm. and more cohesive with longer storylines and just a more interesting overall pay-per-view next year. And if they do that and they put on the same quality wrestling, you're talking a possible yeah. A plus pay-per-view. Yeah, the A version of the show is 
you've got Omega there. You've got Punk there. Brian Danielson. You've got, you've got Brian Danielson there. You've got Ishii Kota there. Ibushi. Yeah. yeah, you've got Ibushi there. You've got every. That's the A version. You just do this with those guys. That That's the A version of the show. Look, this show yep. ended up being about three hours, 45 minutes. Uh, I, you know, Double or Nothing was about four hours as well. This went by so much faster than Double or Nothing. It, it really didn't feel like the show dragged. Again, Agreed. Really liked the show. Much better than Double or Nothing. Um, and AEW, you know, it, it's been down for a little bit, and I'm curious where things move going forward. Now that this is behind them, they got to get back into their own storytelling. That's one of the reasons I had the show as a B plus is that nothing, very few things that happened in this show impact AEW going forward. And that that's what we got to see next. I'm going to be at Blood of Guts on Wednesday. Looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to see kind of uh, if AEW can get back in its groove with some stories and stuff now that it's got this behind it after, after it made for kind of an awkward week of TV. That is an interesting way to end the show. AEW has been down for months at this point in terms of storytelling, TV excitement. It just hasn't been the same product that I think we came to know and, and very much appreciate. And it was one thing after another. It was the injection of Ring of Honor storylines, really, for no reason. Some of it was people getting injured, but a lot there was a ton of rematches for a really long time. And the build to the last two pay-per-views before this one, but especially Double or Nothing, was just very disappointing. Mm-hmm. And coming out of it, the company really didn't have any momentum. And then they had to go immediately into this. And I think a lot of people who don't know New Japan at all, were probably turned off. Not, you know, not, not a lot of, not, I should correct myself here. Not a lot of people, but a portion of the fan base that wasn't interested may may have been turned off to the product. And you've seen it in their ratings recently, but they have an opportunity on Wednesday with a signature show, Blood or Guts, they've promoted heavily, Blood and Guts, that they've promoted heavily um, with major stars in the main event, Cesaro basically making his debut with the company, at least his television debut. They have an opportunity to kind of reset the deck to put on a damn good blood and guts and then kick off a new set of storylines, clean slate, get the ring of honor shit out of there and just move forward as they build to their next pay-per-view. And I think if they go into this with that mentality, they have a lot of momentum behind their sales, even with the injuries, even with the MJF storyline with MJF not there right now, he can come back at any time and kickstart shit. They have Wardlow potentially winning the TNT championship. Who knows when the hell that's going to happen or when they're going to actually do something with him. You heard my criticisms about that this week. But my point is, there is now space for AEW to kind of take off again, which they've really struggled to do over the last couple of months. And it really all starts Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. They over-delivered here. They, they, they've got some positive momentum out of this. And uh, I hope they can do something with it. Absolutely. All I'm right. Looking forward, I'm looking forward to seeing it in person. All right. Well, that was a very concise uh, I would call it at least instant analysis for AEW and JPW Forbidden Door. I appreciate you all joining us to break down that entire card. Before we get out of here, please allow me to remind you that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave those five-star ratings on Apple. Also leave a review. Let everyone know how much you love the show. Follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Next time, you can participate in those polls. You can know when episodes drop. And of course, you can read our tweets and interact with us live during all of the major programs. And speaking of what's coming up next, we're going 
back to back with pay-per-views, premium live events, whatever the hell you want to call them, because this coming week is the go home to WWE Money in the Bank. So we will have on Tuesday our WWE Money in the Bank Ultimate Preview. We will come back on Thursday with our AEW and NXT episode. And then on Saturday, we will have WWE Money in the Bank Instant Analysis as soon as that show goes off the air. And the plan right now is 6.30 p.m. Eastern on Saturday. We will do a live WWE Money in the Bank pre-show on Twitter Spaces. Another great reason to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. So do not miss anything that we have scheduled for next week. We have a bunch of great episodes for you still to listen to. Again, you can listen to the AEW for NJPW Forbidden Door Ultimate Preview and hear our comments about Cesaro, the one-hour, eight-minute mark. You can go back and listen to our takes on Jeff Hardy's DUI, Vince McMahon's investigation, our interview with Mikel Rodriguez, a lot of really good content from the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast recently, and hopefully you agree that we can record once again tonight. We will next see you on Tuesday. You will hear from us, I should say, on Tuesday. At this time, for Vintage Chris Mimi, this is the Silver King Adam We are signing off very early Monday morning and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.